Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to L for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page and the link is in the show notes. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. I am... Megan Perry. I am a person who has faced a lot of challenges. Ticks, I tick a lot of boxes of the social ills of our society and I'm in many maligned categories of people. I am today in recovery from a problematic substance use and that battle was the dominating theme of my life from 15 years old to 38 years old. And with it, before it, and with it came a whole host of other things, trauma and mental health challenges. I have a long, complicated relationship with the justice system. I have many incarcerations and up until very recently had a criminal record, a felony record for trafficking substances, and just recently got that record expunged, which is a huge gift, accomplishment, and privilege because my relationship with the criminal justice system was horrible. However, I was very privileged through it. I was unhoused for years, living a street-based lifestyle, domestic violence. I sold drugs as part of the street-based economy for years. Sold drugs most of my years that I used drugs as a way to supply myself with drugs without having to hurt people or um, steal from people. Not that I didn't do those things sometimes, but selling them made the most sense to me. So today I have over 11 years in recovery. It's abstinence-based recovery because that was the only thing that was really offered to me. I might have a different definition of recovery for myself had I had some options. And uh, I have a business, Revolution Recovery, in which I, I do recovery coaching and theater and storytelling and education. And I have, I blend all of those things together. Those are things that have helped me immensely and that I have great passion for. And so I'm one of the fortunate people who gets to indulge in my passions and the things I believe in the most as also my profession. I love underdogs. I've felt like an underdog my whole life. I just want everyone who's on a margin of any kind, come on in to my world and my love and my appreciation of who you are and how much your life is worthwhile. And we lose sight and we use terms like these people and we Mm. may not think about much of saying these people, but you've labeled them. Even with nothing coming after people, you've still labeled them, these people, as separate from my people or us. So these people, 
those people are my people. I am those people. I'm curious, why do you think your approach works? Because I really, I see people. The mm -hmm. things that I create and the work that I do, I really see people and value people. And that is a feeling that a lot of people don't get other places, especially the type of people that I love, which is my people. <laughs> and so it's powerful when we just invite someone into a space and say, you have equal space with me and you're a valued member of this space and you have your own answers. You have all the answers. That is a thing that is grossly missing in so much of the ways that we treat, quote unquote, treat people for things like problematic substance use or mental health challenges is that we believe we have the answers for them. Instead of right. recognizing that they actually have the answers, but they just need a little help to find those answers, giving them the autonomy and the dignity of naming for themselves what the challenges are, naming for themselves what they want to work on. And I might just ask them some good questions to help them discover how they want to get there. And that's the foundation of, of recovery coaching. It's called the spectrum of attitudes. So our systems treat people as objects or recipients. So if you're an object, mm -hmm. I know exactly what's best for you and I'm going to try to make you do it. And you right. have no say. If you're a recipient, I know what's best for you, but I'm going to pretend like you have a choice in it, or I'm going to give you some very limited choices in it. So I'm like gaslighting you and manipulating you to get you to do what I know is best for you without you realizing that I'm making you do that or manipulating you. Treating someone as a resource is saying, I don't know anything about you. I'm just curious and I want to be helpful. So what do you have going on? What's working for you? What's not working for you? What do you want? What do you see as your biggest challenge? Do you feel like working on that today? And if no, it's cool. I just want to hang out with you and get to know you and learn about you in the hopes that I can support you in changing your quality of life if you're interested in that. And that's also harm reduction. Our whole treatment model, our whole treatment industrial complex, 12-step, all of it treats people like objects and recipients. Right. That's a really good segue into one of the main issues. Because the thing about like treatment, especially drug treatment in the United States, I feel is that like very few people know some of the really serious quality issues that are pervasive in the entire industry. So you have very desperate like families, partners, the people themselves wanting treatment. It's it's not uncommon. I remember clients that weren't that old, that were in their 30s that were like up to double digits in treatment attempts. Oh god. Yeah. Right. And a lot of times they were just like so dejected. They were like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Because when you're doing intake, intake can be a really stressful process because you're having to talk about some really private things with a complete stranger, more or less. And, and people will be like, oh my God, like they'll get so embarrassed that you can just see like Shane Bloom as they talk. And a lot of times it's it's like it's a serious problem with the industry. Right. 
if people are having to go through so many times in treatment, especially like for people that are constantly getting kicked out. It sounds like there's a lot of self-blame, right? Oh, absolutely. And oftentimes I tell people like, hey, our treatment industry fails a lot of people. So it's not just you. And I don't want you to feel like, you know, that's all on you. We have an extraordinarily inadequate at best and mendacious treatment industry in the United States. And was that inherently obvious to you, Megan? Oh, yes. I am one of those people who went to something like, I have no real count, but well over 20, probably around 30 inpatient attempts at establishing recovery. And I cannot, there's nothing less trauma informed than treatment, inpatient treatment. As Akoit's talking about the intake process, it's one of my biggest gripes with the system. And what I talk about a lot is how traumatic just an intake at a detox is because you, I'm sitting down across from somebody with either a clipboard or a computer who's checking boxes. And the questions that I'm being asked are asking me to tell you about the absolute worst things that ever happened to me. The stakes of that intake interview feel very high because I, at that moment, am convinced that I am going to die if I keep using substances the same way. And my life is on the line in that intake interview because I just desperately need some kind of help. And the question that gets me the most that I have been asked multiple times is how many pregnancies have you had and how many children do you have? And that quite frankly is none of your fucking business and it has nothing to do with treatment. And it's one of the most invasive and potentially traumatic questions to ask a woman as one example. Yeah, wow. Of the types of things that were asked. Were you sexually abused as a child? Have you been a victim of domestic violence? These are not questions to be asked lightly. And when you're a person seeking recovery, you are asked over and over and over to answer questions like that. When you are in no way in a space of safety, security, or with any kind of assurance that the person who's hearing the those answers or the group of people in your little group of people seeking help going to hold that with any kind of the respect or dignity or confidentiality or sacredness that it deserves. And so we are traumatizing people over and over in this system and we are completely 100% gaslighting them that it's their fault if they fail. Didn't work it. You didn't want it bad enough. These are my 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 bones, the ones that I can't stand. You oh, he didn't want it bad enough. Oh, she didn't try hard enough. Oh, she's not ready. What right. I'm not ready for is your failure of a system to put me through a bunch of trauma and then put me back on the street with no support. The the answer to addiction is not an acute one. And we are hyper-focused on an acute solution and it doesn't work. It does not work. But insurance dollars, which controls all of this, insurance, it's insurance and stigma and and this attachment to the dominant culture that was established with 12-step in the 1930s and then the Minnesota model in the 1950s, this attachment to this one way of doing it does not work, but it's my fault 
if it doesn't work, even though it's not built for me. It's not even built with me in mind. Yeah, it's funny. They should put the first question on these intake forms should be like, do you find intake forms traumatizing? Yes. And then they just bypass it. Just no. Okay, we won't go there. Let's move on. I remember the first time I did an intake. I was blown away because the intake forms at my facility was like a binder full. It's hours of opening and assessment and all these things. And I just remember feeling these people are prisoners, right? It just felt like such an invasive process. And I was always the person that was just like, oh, hey, do you need water? Do you need to step outside and maybe get some fresh air for a little bit? I know these are hard questions. And I would think that's just normal courtesy for asking very invasive questions. I felt really bad. And it was an indictment to the treatment industry when a client was just like, oh, this was like you, this was the nicest intake I've ever had. Usually they don't like, they, they get really annoyed if I ask to step outside and things like that. And again, it's, there is so much correlation between the prison industry and the treatment industry and like the troubled teen industry. Those three are all very similar and how they make like subjects out of people and enforce this environment that is ultimately lacking in a lot of compassion. For one, we're commodities. For two, we're problems to solve. That's where it ends. I do think that is not only relegated to the addiction industry, because all throughout the medical model, you see the disease standing in front of you, not the human. And right no space for it. And so it makes me wonder, since what is the purpose perpetuating bureaucracy and making money? Is that what as the purpose of this dehumanizing pretense of treatment? I think it, so the medical field is one of the worst offenders with the spectrum of attitudes right. and treating people like objects and recipients. And so I work with storytelling a lot And there. When has a, a doctor ever wanted to know the story of what's going on with you? They right. don't. They're not interested. We don't got time. We don't have time for that. So right. it's definitely profit driven, but it's also power. Power differentials is a big part of it. But when we do get into, and it's the whole behavioral health field too. It's not just addiction. It's also mental health thing that's on the spectrum of autism. Like the, there's all of this is. There's a lot of things that come under this sort of umbrella of the way that were treated, it almost all goes back to stigma and the way the war on drugs began and in, in, in ways of controlling people that are less than desirable or threaten the status quo. And so anything that threatens the dominant culture has to be contained or controlled in some way. And so we see that, obviously, in, in very clear things like Henry Ainslinger and I heard you mention J. Edgar Hoover recently on a podcast and the way that we made opium illegal because of Chinese immigrants that were here to build, that we brought here to build railroads. Right. And then they were having too much fun and had the potential to get organized and, oh, heaven forbid, commingling with white women. So we have to ban opium and make it a crime to use opium. And that was one of the very first moves that the U.S. made to control people through, the, through making a substance evil. So, and this is a whole other element to this is that we've... We use substances as weapons to accomplish agendas. 
And so when we deem that one substance is evil and one substance is medicine and revered, and we draw these imaginary lines between them, the ones that are on the illicit side, generally speaking, historically, have been associated with a certain type of person, a certain class, a certain race, a certain problem right. that threatens the status quo. Marijuana got its name from Tijuana. Like they wanted to give it a name that had that rung of racism that people would associate with Tijuana. And so the preferred language for that today is cannabis because we don't need to have that racist language attached to it. But all throughout time, we've named these things. Like the LSD wasn't illegal until counterculture in the 60s. Right. So we've followed this path and and that belief system is so deeply ingrained in every aspect of society that it really controls, it it really controls the narrative. And the narratives, obviously, we are storytelling based species, right? And from cave art to TikTok, it's all storytelling. That's how we communicate, pass on norms and culture, problem solve, role model, all of it. Those narratives are incredibly important. And so the blaming the person who chooses to use the chooses, we'll use that, use that loosely, blaming the person who uses the substance is a really convenient way of taking the focus off of what is really wrong, which is all this, the regular oppressive societal systems that we have. And so if we can blame a substance, make a substance evil, and therefore by association, the person who uses that substance is a terrible bad person, or at best, a very sick, suffering, poor person who's, you're taking their power away by calling them sick and suffering, rather than somebody who's just, who chooses to use a substance or has life circumstances where the substances were presented to them. And it was a way of addressing other stuff that they have going on. And some people just like to use drugs and that's cool, but it's a really easy way of keeping that group or these, those populations, those communities of people under control. Yeah, it's a huge disciplinary function. Same with homelessness, right? That's why like these marginalized populations, whether that's in mental hospitals or elsewhere, are that, that like treatment in this sector is so bereft across the board. We don't actually really want to treat them all that much. No. So individual families, and there are millions of people who deeply care about People who use drugs, people who have problematic relationship with drugs or substances in general, people who have mental health challenges. Like, There's a lot of people who really care about people like myself. But the systems and the power holders do not allow that caring and that love to be a powerful force in it because it threatens to upend the whole system that keeps people like myself under control. On the other hand, it seems contradictory because after the riots, they deliberately did introduce heroin into the black community to zone them out and then condemned them for being zoned out. Or Oxy was deliberately marketed with a wild degree of capitalist intensity to get people to take OxyContin, even though they knew when they were marketing it, it was addictive because it was falsely declared not addictive, but just making money. And so it seems so commingled, A, with the desires of a capitalist system to both profit 
and to subdue restive populations. And I know J. Edgar Hoover thought that drugs and jazz, Black people's music, were a threat because it represented an alternative African-American culture that should be expunged, and yet they used it. And I think it explains the differential crackdown between cocaine consumed by the wealthy and crack consumed by the poor, that it seems so commingled with enforcing class boundaries and also profiting and then condemning the excesses of, the, of this addiction they created. It's such a contradictory mess. It is, but I think, and I think a lot of people believe that the rate of overdose death that we have right now from opioids is a result of the marketing of Purdue and OxyContin. And it's far more complicated than that. It's not a substance that causes addiction. It is a larger societal force of ultimately to a certain degree, the vast majority of problematic drug use is stems from needing desire to self-medicate. The worse the social conditions, the more people want to escape. And drugs are one of those ways of escaping. And I also think that, of course, it's not only addiction. Suicides are way up. Deaths are getting, and not from addiction, but Americans are dying sooner than they ever did. Instead of going living longer, people are living shorter. Many of them, not through drugs, but through what Case and Deaton called deaths of despair that they see no future. And that, of course, is socially relevant and not discussed. Yeah, Harriet, you said something actually the other week. We had Daniel Maté on as a guest. He was the co-author of this book called The Myth of Normal, which is pretty amazing, worth a read. And one of the things that you were saying, Harriet, is that with clients or just people in general, It's about giving people the attention that they deserve, maybe that they never got. And I thought that the reason that stuck in my head or the reason it came up was when, Megan, you were talking about theatre and storytelling. I was like, that's exactly it. That's the place where you get to have the attention that you deserved, right? I don't want to derail the particular subject or the path that we're on right now, but I also am really fascinated by that part of the recovery process. And yeah, I just... Would love to know more. So I do definitely want to talk about what happens within storytelling and theater that is so incredibly powerful. But I do want to, like you said, Liam, to go back to not leave off where we are in this sort of other thing. So I'd love to put a pin in that and come back to it and talk about looking forward rather than not always looking backward. But I want to say one thing, which is that we talk a lot about that people develop problematic relationships with substances because they're self-medicating. But that is not why people start using substances. People start using substances because they want to find joy. They want to have fun. They want euphoria. They want belonging. They want community. They want to enjoy themselves. The vast majority of people use substances so they can enjoy themselves. Right. And when we take that part out of the narrative, we also take out the part that there are millions of people who use drugs and have a great time. 
and do Mm -hmm. not have any problems or they have minor consequences. And so, again, we have to separate this concept that substances are always bad because they are not. It's not the substance that's bad. What's bad is the, the ways in which society lets people down and doesn't take care of their basic needs, but in, in all levels of the hierarchy, not just basic safety, security, and physical needs, but also love and belonging and self-actualization and esteem. Those We're letting people down on such a profound level that mm-hmm. eventually that, that there is a an aspect of the substance use, and for some it's not eventually, it's right away, that that becomes a solve, that becomes a way to just survive and get by and not feel so terrible all the time. I don't feel terrible because there's something wrong with me. I feel terrible because society is fucked. I'm just going to say that as I see it. There's a lot of wonderful things and I'm a super optimistic person, but as a person who started using drugs because it looked really fun and I wanted to have fun, who then over a little period of time found that it it filled this huge black hole inside of me. Maybe it just covered my eyes so I couldn't see the black hole or it just was a veil that kept me from having to face the what felt like my inability to exist in the world because it was just too painful. It was too hard. It was too sad. It was too much suffering of myself and my loved ones and everybody around me. And so it's not about that the substance itself is evil, especially with fentanyl today. We're so hyper fixated on fentanyl as evil. It's just it's the iron law of prohibition. The only reason that street fentanyl, because medical fentanyl is a, has been a, an amazingly well-used drug for pain in the medical world. Street right. fentanyl is a direct result of us cracking down on heroin. Now, heroin, when we prescribed all these painkillers and then all of a sudden we put these really strict limits on them, the prescribing laws that were shifted. All that did, that's the iron law of prohibition, is that you take away one one drug and people are going to find a way to to fill it. So they filled it with heroin. So people started dying of heroin. And then slogans like kill your local heroin dealer, which I was one, kill your local heroin dealer is bandied about. And people are put put them all away for life, give them the death penalty, whatever. We crack down on heroin. And so up pops fentanyl. When we, if we eliminated all of the fentanyl in the world, there would be another substance, an opioid derivative that would emerge that would be just as lethal, if not more lethal. So it's not about the fentanyl. It's about these other societal ills that are not being addressed. And it's about the way that fentanyl actually does a really good job of keeping the masses under wraps, under hold, under sedated and dead and not a problem. When it's never someone's fault that they struggle with a substance use disorder. And I hate that language too. I don't even, I don't know why that just came out of my mouth (laughs) because... It's about my relationship with substance and we can name it a disease so we can get get reimbursed by insurance. And it moved us from this real blame type of model. It, It moved us forward in the recovery movement. It moved us forward, that language and that label from what it used to be, which is that an utterly moral failing. So it got us to, okay, some people will now see it as a medical thing, but that also 
leaves out a, hu- a huge number of people who use substances problematically or not. Like it's not enough of a spectrum and it's a life sentence. And right. I don't believe that I have substance use disorder. I had right. a problematic relationship with substances that I, that is no longer problematic. So you label me, brand me as having substance use, a chronic relapsing fatal disease is how it's defined. Chronic right. relapsing fatal disease. Are you kidding me? That's my, that's my designation. You want to brand that on me for life that I will never, that I can never be free of. So what, how well is that really serving us? Also, it's interesting that the United States addiction far outstrips addiction in other Western countries, not only because they have more of a social safety net, but because they have a political direction for people to understand what's going down and to strike against it, like in France that has about 4 million people in the streets right now because they feel they're being mistreated by their government. That there is a sense of we, and that it's not me, that we are being mistreated and we can do something about it. I think part of the trouble with the United States right now is there are protest movements, but there's no positive thing, a vision of a better world that we can unite in together that gives people hope. And it made me think of it once when I was at one of the Occupy protests where some veterans were talking and they said, this is the best I've felt in about 10 years because there's possibility here. And I think Americans make everything an individual problem and don't give people a sense that we together connected can change it. And that is a big problem with looking for personal out because it's a personal society that tells you the out is only personal and parenthetically mm. blame. A while ago, we did an episode with a psychiatrist, Joanna, I can't pronounce her surname correctly, so I'm not even going to try. But one of the questions I asked her, very sort of enlightening episode about various medications and perhaps some of the stuff that you're not always told and the sort of long-term effects, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the questions I had to her was what her definition of a drug was, because if it's not the substance per se, but it's the relationship, relationships in general, right? That there's something out of balance, maybe, that the definition of a drug to my mind, it isn't just these sort of headline substances. If any kind of food you eat has an effect on your body, has an effect on your mood, chocolate, lol. So where's the line between these different substances? Where's the line between that and sugar or food or coffee, et cetera, et cetera? Caffeine is a hell of a drug. Yeah, and it's obviously the drug of choice for productivity to a certain degree what we see is drugs as a category is it can, like you said can be a fuzzy category right i think perhaps the line is where the people in power if it's one that i want to use if i'm a, if i have a have power to change things and if it's a substance or drug that i want to use then i'm going to keep it legal if it if i don't personally have a use for it or it doesn't enhance my life in my belief but i can use it to control other people or accomplish other goals of mine. That's the line. People love alcohol. People love caffeine. People love sugar. And our pe- people love guns. Are we willing to give up our own personal desires for the benefit of others? 
most cases, no. And that's why we have so many guns, because <laughs> I just want to have my gun. I like guns and I want to have my guns. And I don't care that it's the number one cause of death for children in the U.S. And the same with substances. Like I, I want to have my alcohol and now tons of people say, I want to have my cannabis. So we're not going to fight that war anymore. I also but, think that people have guns because they feel defenseless and they're in a very primitive way taking some control over their lives as well as being totally brainwashed by NRA ads so that the idea, I need protection, I am vulnerable, is particularly translated for men into the idea that they can be manly and defend themselves through the use of a firearm, which is certainly pathetic. It's not just that I love my guns. There's a reason that people love their guns. They love the illusion of protection as their lives deteriorate. And I think that's the same with street drugs and other substances. I like the illusion of well-being. While my country's empire is over and our conditions deteriorate and my personal life does too. And these are individual decisions, but they're socially ramified, which is one of the reasons that America has the worst of the 10, all 10 areas of well-being that have to do with social cohesion and social hope. Yeah, I find, I find the, uh, the thing you said earlier, Megan, that, you know, that the initial impulse was to have a good time. There's certainly a sense of empowerment in that, right? <laughs> it's, an, it's, a, it's autonomy. I want to make this situation I'm in better. That speaks to some sort of empowerment, even if the result maybe isn't always that. Yes, and I think, and that just has such far-reaching implications when we change that narrative about substances, that they can be used for fun, for joy, for euphoria, for connection, for community for play, for exploration, for spirituality, right? There, there's such a, that echoes through when we change the orientation to that, that they have inherent value and that mm -hmm. people should have the autonomy and dignity of having choice around it has such profound ripple effects throughout the whole, all of our system. For example, in the recovery world, there's this sort of imaginary binary where if you're someone who uses drugs and you're not trying to stop, then you're on the left side of this binary. If you're trying to stop or you have stopped, you're on the right side of this binary. And it, as though they are two completely separate worlds. Instead of looking at it as a, as a full spectrum where there's just as much value and respect and dignity in the people on the left side who use drugs and don't want to change that. It, and it's not just the redeemed over here on the recovery side. So all of our services are built on this thing where they hinge on that binary line. They hinge on that pivot point of if you're seeking or in, then you're, we have all kinds of things for you and you're welcome in our community, the recovery community. If you're not seeking, then you're not ready. That is an assumption that you belong over here on the right side, that every single person who's using drugs and they're on the left side of the binary are just wrong. They just don't know yet or they haven't chosen yet. And we blame them for that. And we don't 
welcome them into a larger community. There doesn't have to be such a separation. And this is one of the things where I've been in the recovery movement doing advocacy and working in the field and stuff for a long time. And this is where I think we're really failing is because we have this sort of victim blaming mentality and this dumbing down of everybody, everyone who uses, who chooses to use drugs. The reality is that we can see that many of those people are having problems. They are having challenges that could be, you could say that it's because of their substance use. And that may be well and true, but it doesn't, it's not my goal to decide for that person. So even if I see them struggling, I still need to treat them with respect and dignity in in that they have the choice of how, what quality of life they're living, what quality of life they want to have. And so instead of relegating them to this sort of dark hole bucket over here where they're separate from, I can say they are the same as me. They just have a different relationship to substances than I do. And I don't have any right to decide for them that it should change. That relationship should change. And we that the mentality of like 12 step, it works if you work it. Not is for everyone. One, oh my God. It's one of my it's one of my biggest pet peeves because it is just clear as day. When you say that to somebody, it works if you work it, you are saying that there is something fundamentally wrong with them. Mm-hmm. That they can't come to AA and succeed. Mm-hmm. AA is not for everybody. And it's funky little stepchild NA. Not for everyone. And But we have the cult of 12-step convincing right. people that there is something wrong. There are people who are constitutionally incapable. Of honesty. Of this pre- yeah. Of, which is essentially working this program. That's right. killing it's people. In, it's That's insulting people. It's insulting. Exactly. It is. So that is that is one of the most... I have friends that are very fond of their AA groups and NA groups. And if it works for them, I have no issues with it. But there are... One aspect of AA and NA is that while it might have been revolutionary almost 100 years ago, it is something where its main ethos hasn't changed in 100 years. It's not recognized that the 12-step programs, when they do work in that minority of time, work because they basically set up a communist organization from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. It's not about the profit system, and it substitutes a relentingly savage society for a community. You have a community, and people in America are desperate for community. And I'm not saying it's for everybody. I don't think so. But I think we have to understand that we have to also see the social context. People can't determine their lives. And if they want to make changes, they'd have to band together. And we don't have too many ways of doing that in a big sense. And the writing to the spirit level, all of the markers of a dysfunctional society that make people look for refuge, whether it's the level of trust, mental illness, life expectancy, infant mortality, obesity, teen births, homicides, imprisonment, social mobility, all of those things. They are all worse here. And the reason they're they're worse is the society is decomposing and we don't have an alternative. And I think 
where things work, they give people another social alternative and form of connection because I think that's, that's broken down here. Right. That's fine. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But the problem with the dominant 12-step is if they approached it as this is one of the ways and if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, you should go find other communities. But the problem is that they don't. They often don't. They say this is the only way. The other options are enabling. And it's also one of those things where that model has infiltrated the formal treatment model to a certain degree where why are people paying hundreds of thousands of tens of thousands of dollars in treatment based on a model they can get for free out in the community? So I want to... First of all, I want to call myself out because I get the fact that so many of my people, as I will call them, the people, all of our people are dying because of systemic problems and because of people who can't let go or step outside or welcome other than their own dominant culture. I get angry and I speak from that place and I just want to stop and check myself and try to speak from a place of what is truly my nature, which is from a place of love and the inherent value of every single person, even if they're doing things that I think may be damaging others and just come from a more holistic place because I could rant and say all the things that are wrong for hours. And so this is a great spot for me to say, okay, check yourself, Megan. So 12-step saved me. 12-step is one of the biggest pieces, supports that I found that changed a 23-year addiction to substances. 12-step has a lot of things about it that are amazing and wonderful and desperately needed. Mm -hmm. And so shout out to everyone who keeps that organization going with no money and based in community and based in caring for each other and, and all of that. Where it gets off track and it comes from such a genuine place. When you, like myself, had multiple overdoses, multiple times that, that my relationship with substances almost killed me, came very close to killing me, and had me in jail, incarcerated, with no bail, facing a two-year prison sentence for a travel trafficking heroin, five months pregnant and on methadone. That's where my relationship with substances brought me. When I found, among other, some other things that were at play at that time in my life, when I finally stepped into the recovery that I have now, 12-step gave me what I needed. It gave me the alternative and it gave me so much of my foundation. And mm -hmm. the reason that people cling to the belief that it works for everybody, it is the answer, is because we almost died. And this is the thing that saved us. And so that attachment to 12-step as the solution comes from, it's some deep-seated stuff. And then we perpetuate it with the messaging in 12-step that we hear over and over and over. And then it becomes this more toxic thing as people repeat these beliefs like it works if you work it and some people are constitutionally incapable. But it is an amazing thing that we need to have. But like you were just saying, the problem is when people can't let go 
of that as the only solution. And they, and 12 step blames the person if the person doesn't succeed in 12 step. And that is really toxic and damaging. And it just mirrors society. So 12 step is totally the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. If you want to look at it within that kind of a model. So it all is doing is mimicking what's happening in society, period. And it is, I believe, not helpful for the vast majority of treatment offerings in inpatient acute residential treatment offerings to be so reliant on 12-step that other things aren't offered. And so the solutions, like where we can build and go from that is to say, okay, 12-step, check yourself a little, step back a little, the treatment industry open your fucking mind, open your eyes a little to some other things. And what else is there that provides belonging and community? So I wrote, I train recovery coaches. I train the peer workforce. I write curriculum and for those who are working in that capacity. And two years ago, I wrote a curriculum with a colleague of mine called Infinite Pathways of Recovery. And in that, we challenge this idea because people, we talk about multiple pathways, right? So if it's not AA and NA, then what is it? And we think that that there's a menu of options, which is still treating people like a recipient. There's just 12 options. So maybe it's not 12 step, but it's going to be refuge recovery, the Phoenix multi-sport, smart recovery, right? Like we give them these limited choices. Right. In infinite pathways, the concept of infinite pathways is saying, okay, that's cool that all of those established pathways are there, but do they, whatever one you choose, does it really truly represent and respect your cultures? All of the cultures you bring with you, all of the identities that you bring with you, your own values and belief systems. A lot of the time that's not the case. And so where do you go where you're fully honored and you can show up with all of the things that you are? So if we say 12 step, I go to AA, I get what I need there. What do you actually get there? I don't know. I get community. Okay. But what is it about being in a community that you get? Peeling back those layers until we're at the most fundamental needs. So you need some belonging. You need to feel a part of something that's bigger than just you. You need some social socializing. We're social animals. We absolutely need socializing. You need to laugh, right? We need to have joy and laughter and fun. You need to learn about your challenge and find out from others how they solved it, how they solved their their problem or challenge. You can find those things in all different places. It does not have to be within an established pathway. It also doesn't have to be in like a dedicated recovery space. Exactly. I don't participate in any dedicated recovery spaces. Now, granted, I work in recovery. And so partly that work feeds that's part of my pathway, but my pathway is a tapestry of things that you would never name as recovery pathways. I exercise, I eat nutritious foods, I hike in the woods, I have pets that I really love. I have relationship with family, I have relationship with other people who don't use substances, like I have activism and advocacy work. I have just all these threads that I've woven together that support me. Now, granted, I started in 12-step, but that was all there was. But today, after five years, I left 12-step because I was like, there's more. I don't want to be in a fear-based system. 
And 12-step right. is a fear-based system. I want to be in a space where I trust and believe that life is good and will continue to be good and all my needs will be met. And I can go explore, grow, and evolve into the most amazing kick-ass human that I could ever possibly be. And I couldn't do that within 12-step because it felt like it. They were, they, all I heard was the narrative that I'm sick and I will always be sick. I will always have to be here or else I will relapse. And there's always the stories of the people who had 20 years and went left meetings and then they relapsed and their whole life was ruined. And I didn't want to live that way. I want to be bigger than my recovery. I don't want to be defined by recovery. I don't want to have a limited box to live in. And so when we have this sort of idea of the infinite ways in which we rebuild ourselves and the infinite directions in which I can grow, that's that's something that I can get really excited about. That's something as someone who had no hope and no optimism and no belief that I could ever be much of anything. I lived in a box labeled addict felon. I lived in that Mm -hmm. box for over 20 years. I lived in that box years into my recovery until I got into storytelling and all of that. And it helped me smash that box and realize that I'm a human being. I just want to be a person. I just want to be a person. And much of the ways in which we treat addiction and problematic substance use is by defining and limiting people to a box or a set of like set of principles you can never grow from. Mm -hmm. I want to be wrong. I hope I I'm wrong in six months. I, I say all the time, I, if I'm on a, like a podcast like this or something like this, I'm like, listen, y'all, in six months, I might be saying something different. And that's okay. Because I'm, I feel like I'm in my teenage phase right now mm-hmm. with the recovery movement. Like I was in it and I loved it. And I was like, totally just like a child would be within the family system, like all of the beliefs and everything. I hook, line, and sinker. And as I've grown a little more independent and stepped outside of that, I'm like, oh, screw the system. The establishment's messed up and I don't agree with it anymore. And I'm going to go strike out and find my own stuff. And I feel like in some ways that's where I am is saying, whoa, now I see all the problems. Now I see where it's not working and how it's not holding space for my friends, how it's not honoring and serving people that I love that use drugs or come from different cultures or orientations or are atheists and agnostics or whatever those things are. It doesn't hold space for them all. And so as I'm recognizing that, I'm saying, okay, what is there? What else is there? And that's where I'm really excited to build a space and and to build tables where they're built by us, not for us, Mm. but they're built by us. I don't want to go to your table. You can build this biggest stupid table as you want, but it's your freaking table. We got to build our own tables that are that, that honor us. And so I might be completely wrong in six months. Who knows? But I'm on a mission to explore. Yeah, we did this episode about life after a cult. Really interesting. And one of the things that I took away from that was, yeah, it's about options, right? That if you want a sign you're in a cult, there's only one way of doing things. And it's this particular way. And it's from up on high, right? So it's pretty interesting you talking about AA ultimately being this thing of like fear-based and there's the stories that keep you there. I don't know if you've ever seen that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, but that sort of echoes a similar thing of the fear of the outside. But that idea that you actually, you wanted to expand your options is fascinating. And once that's your sort of direction of travel, it sounds like you've found lots of different ways of being or ways of examining stuff. And how have you got to that point then of stories? 
or Elf Theatre? Why is it powerful? The biggest thing about the work that I do and have been blessed in the work that I've gotten to be a part of that others are doing as well. The biggest thing is that we own our own narrative, particularly for folks who have tick off all the boxes for the social ills like myself. All of the stories are being told about us without us. And so if you look at somebody who's had a life like mine from the age of 15, right? I was in therapy because I was having serious, I had severe depression and anxiety, generalized trauma, which didn't get named until 25 years later. So I was having all these problems. So from that moment, all the way through all of the detoxes, rehabs, halfway houses, homeless shelters, jail cells, everywhere that I landed, every threshold that I crossed, a story was written about me by on a form of some kind. I got my criminal record as part of my expungement. And it was fascinating to read their story of me and compare it to my story of me, neither of which is the truth, honestly, because it, it, I, one of the things that we do, and this is a little bit of going off in a different direction, we write the story of what happened to us, to ourselves in the wake of what happened. And then we start to tell it to ourselves and others that way. And it locks it in. That is the story. And it stays that story until we have an opportunity to challenge it. And the same goes for the records and the stories that are told about Mm -hmm. us. So every doctor's visit, every night that I checked into the homeless shelter, every intake form that was ever completed on my behalf, every encounter with the police, it's all stories that people are telling about me where I don't really get a say in that story and in that narrative. So you could look at my life and have this massive stack of paper that tells the story of Megan the addict and felon. It does not tell the story of Megan the human. Right. And so it wasn't until I got into personal narrative storytelling that I got to start telling the stories of Megan the human. And I am not a single story. And that's something we get wrong a lot. Tell us the story of your incarceration or the story of your addiction or the story of your recovery. It's not one story. It's thousands of stories because they're just human experiences. They're not a single epic saga narrative. That's what locks us into boxes. So when we're given the opportunity to tell our own stories and we're given a framework, storytelling is the foundation of 12 steps, storytelling with a script. So we're taught, we learn how to tell stories a certain way in 12-step, and it's full of cliches and huge reverence and and respect for storytelling in 12-step because it works really well within that context, but it has a few shortcomings. 12-step's riddled with cliches. That That was when I was sick and tired and sick and tired enough, sick and tired enough of being sick and tired, and that's when I hit my knees and surrendered and I and then I jumped in the back pocket of my sponsor and I did 90 meetings in 90 days and now I live one day at a time. That doesn't tell you literally anything about me. That doesn't tell you anything useful, real, tangible, or personal or individualized. And you hear those kinds of stories over and over. So when we're able to question the narrative, when we're given the right kind of framework to say, no, no cliches. I literally say that in my workshops, no cliches. What is, what did hitting your knees actually look like? Because most of the time it's not literal, right? It's figurative. It's a metaphor. So Mm -hmm. I want to know what actually happened 
when you felt like something shifted and you wanted to do something different that actually looked like that's useful. And that gives that person an opportunity to be fully human and to share themselves as a person. And so when we can go back and say, I, I'll give you an example of being incarcerated with methadone, yada, yada. When I first started storytelling, first I told that story as a badass. So I teach a class, Storytelling for the Recovery Workforce, in which we look at the cultures of your storytelling. So one of the cultural sort of perspectives of my storytelling was a badass. I had literally nothing going for me. So I defined myself as the worst addict you'd ever known. I was the worst. I'd been, I'd been incarcerated more times than you. I had been to detox more times than you. I'd overdosed more times than you. I'd been using longer than you. That was the only thing I had was to be worse than you. That was my badge of honor. And that's the place that I came from for years and years. I'd been on the street longer than you. I'd sold more drugs than you. I'd been using needles for longer than you. That was the only thing I had to hold on to. And so for a long time, I told that story as what a badass I was that I was pregnant in jail and on methadone and facing in prison with no bail. That was the way I could write the story to myself at the time that made me feel okay and gave me some power because I was so utterly powerless at that time in my life that only power I could find was if I was tougher or better than you. And that was a way to protect myself. I told the story that protected me. When I got into recovery and I got into, when I first got into personal narrative storytelling, I started telling that story, making fun of myself. It was self-deprecating. It was funny. People would laugh their asses off at it. It was all the absurdity of it and the and what a what a terrible mess I was ha what a hot mess I was. I was the worst one in there. It still had that narrative baked into it. And people loved it. I performed that story over and over and over and people ate it up. When there's still no power in that one. There's still no power in that second story. When I went back to that story probably four years later to rework it again, I stripped it back with the help of one of my facilitators who's an amazing story coach. And I told the truth of the story. The best truth that I know of now, which is 21 years later, which is that I was desperate, desperate, desperate to be a good mom, for my daughter's life to be different than mine. I would have done anything to make her life different from mine. And I had no power to do that. I had no support. I had no resources. I was not equipped to be a mom. I was not equipped to be a human. I did not know how to live a life as a person. I knew how to fight, run, hide, and that's about it. And so instead of making fun of that woman, I found compassion for that woman. Mm -hmm. I found forgiveness for that woman. That woman became a whole woman, not a caricature, not a demon, but an actual human who had all the same desires as everybody else and all of the same feelings as everybody else. And every other mom who just desperately wanted to be a good mom but felt inadequate, universal. And I finally could see myself 
as just a person, just like anybody else who had shitty circumstances and was doing her best. That completely changed me. Just doing that story in that way completely changed me. And it changes how everyone hears me and sees me and feels about me. And if they change how they feel about me, then they can start to look at others in the same way. And if I can have the kind of compassion for myself that I do now through that storytelling, that also means that I can apply that same compassion and understanding for all the other people who are still in those kinds of circumstances. And that's what we lose sight of in the recovery movement is that we no longer think that is us. That is those, that's the sick, bad version that's not me. I'm separated from that. And so everyone else is too. So I, I see you in that way of not compassion and not part of me. And mm-hmm. one of my greatest hopes for people who have overcome the kinds of challenges that I've had is that they can see themselves, their former selves, as just as whole and worthy and deserving compassion and love and forgiveness and dignity as the person that they are today. And we forget that. We do a terrible job of that because the systems that we have, the treatment, the 12 step, so teaches us that those were the sick, bad parts of us instead of those were the suffering parts of us that are still part of us. And that's the storytelling. That's that piece of, I get to, to own that narrative. I get to challenge that narrative. I get to change that narrative. And when I change the narrative for myself, I change it for others as well. It's incredibly powerful. I think that's what a good therapist does in asking you deeper and deeper questions so that through the questions, you can look at yourself with compassion and curiosity and kindness, which is what most of the therapeutic community doesn't do. Plus, one of the things that's important is to remember that fascism is where there's only one way and everybody has to do that. And that is a straitjacket. And so that we have to acknowledge the multiplicity of ourselves and everybody else and not right. fall into these essences, which is an essence of kind of the most limited religious thinking. And to get out of that, because it's a lie. Everything is very complicated, and we are too. And it is fascistic to reduce people's complexity to one story or one thing. And that is a real problem in our society. I think that it's a yes and. I I think that I've spent years and years in therapy and I've had, I haven't, I did dedicated trauma therapy that I finished about a year and a half ago, which I'm profoundly changed my life when I finally did like very specifically did trauma therapy. I highly recommend it if that's a chat, something that you're dealing with. But it has, so it has a beauty and it has some limitations. And I think that it's a yes and, so therapy is really amazing. I think that other spaces where there's an invitation and it's in the, it's an invitation to show up in any way, shape or form and do any kind of work that you want. I'm not going to ask, like in my, I have an eight hour storytelling workshop called recovery storytelling and it's for recovery from anything. We have all different kinds of people in there with all different kinds of journeys. And I give prompts for the people come into the workshop. They learn a little bit about the craft of storytelling. They're invited to craft a three to five minute personal narrative story throughout 
the process. And I give prompts and the prompts aren't about any specific ailment or challenge or whatever. It's things like, tell me, think of a time when you gained something unexpected or think of the scariest phone call you ever received. They're like open. And we get all different kinds of stories in the workshop and people go to all different depths with how much they unpack in the workshop and how many layers they want to peel back. Like they have complete autonomy and control throughout that process. And it's done in a way where it's not, I don't ask anything about them. And we also do it in a way where the person has a set number of minutes to tell the story uninterrupted. Nobody can do anything during that three or four or five minutes except listen to the person. And when they're done, we say, thank you. And we do not ask any other questions of of the person. And, and, and there's in that model or that way of doing it, people feel safe to share things because they know no one's going to ask anything else about it. It's like a sacred three minutes where I can tell you the truth about myself. And I know that you are do, going to just hold that sacred and not do anything else with it, but witness it. And it's incredibly powerful. The creative thing, there's, I don't know what it is. I wish that it could be defined or, I don't know, maybe people have. Elizabeth Gilbert's book, A Big Magic, comes to mind. But the creativity is a key that unlocks like a different access door. So we, we do talk therapy and we go to treatment and we do groups and it's like we talk and we talk and we talk. We're asked to talk. And a lot of times we're asked to write a journal or write your story of your addiction or whatever. But when we go at it from a creative space or a creative angle or within a creative framework, it somehow it unlocks something different that emerges. I have another thing that I do called embodied story work, and it's basically just improv games that I've stacked and built in a certain way and developed with a drama therapist to to help people reveal pieces of themselves and claim pieces of their identity. And it's in their games. Somehow in their creative games, like one of them is check in with yourself if, and, and take a moment to see how you feel today. And then if you were a type of weather, what kind of weather would you be? And the person might say, well, it's like a really warm day, but there's this crisp wind and it's like a chaotic wind. It's com- coming in different directions and it's gusty and, and the sky's blue, but it's starting to get a little bit gray. And then the rest of the group has to act that out with their bodies and their voices. And then we check back in with that person and say, did we do a good job representing that? And they can say, it was, I think maybe you could have added this or someone was doing that and that wasn't right. And it just, it gives people another language to speak and another Mm -hmm. way to just claim a space, an identity, a feeling, just a, a place in the group that brings out different things, other things. And I think that we don't do enough of that kind of alternative invitations in the recovery community. And that's the kind of innovation and the kind of things that we need to create are these things that are just human things that are outside of boxes, outside of labels, are widely available to everybody, give them places to belong, communities to be part of, norms to ascribe to that make people, because that norms make people feel safe. We need to feel safe. We need to know what the boundaries are and all of that. And we just do a terrible job of creating spaces in which people have that kind of autonomy and, and the kind of inv- invitation and to just to play. My gosh, we don't play so 
important. Right. Yeah. One of the, uh, I used to be part of a writing collective and I've followed several people over the years, whether it was recovery or whether it was a pr- experience of prison or any various uh, Things And one of the things that I remember, I was listening to a a guy who spent nearly 20 years in prison. He was talking about there is a difference between writing for a performance and just writing. Because one of the things that you mentioned about having a script, right, is that there, if you have certain markers in your history, you are seen permanently as a suspect device, that you and that like your narrative has to conform to these scripts in order to be accepted right yeah and that oh my goodness yeah I have a great example of that actually and that Um, was one of the things that he was trying to do in his workshop is that's the thing about being heard right is that people don't instantly listen with ears of judgment, which is what people get throughout their lives once these labels start getting stuck on you. And that is, to a certain degree, that's also what has prevented a lot of people, quote unquote, like succeeding in treatment wasn't their fault necessarily. If you never develop any kind of rapport or a sense that you're, counselor or therapist really believes you yeah right how are you supposed to improve in an environment where you feel like you fundamentally aren't believed absolutely and he asked people to recount their trauma with no therapeutic alliance like we haven't like i haven't earned the right to ask you about your trauma i have to earn that Right. I have to earn your trust and respect and your belief that I have, that I'm altruistic and care about you and see you and value you. And that doesn't happen. And I love this. So something really profound happened in the last recovery storytelling workshop that I did. And I want to share it here because it just speaks on so many levels to so many things. So this was a group, I think of eight, eight people, two of whom were mothers who had lost daughters to substance deaths. So one one is Anne-Marie, and she lost her daughter, Martha. Martha had used MDMA three times, and on the fourth time, she overdosed and died at 15 years old. The other one was Kath, and Kath, and that was in the UK. Kath is, and I have their permission to share their stories, is wherever they, wherever I, they're very open about sharing this. So Kath is in Colorado and Kath lost her daughter, Emily, to acute fentanyl intoxication at age 21 after struggling with substances for a few years. Kath does prevention work. And so Kath, Emily died three years ago. Kath has been telling Emily's story in schools and and everywhere else that she's been invited to speak as a tale of warning against fentanyl. So the main character in her story has always been fentanyl and how evil it is and how it killed her child and how you should never ever do it and fentanyl is really bad. She got into the workshop and she started telling that story and through the process She started to get a little deeper and that story got a little deconstructed, which is part of the process. And then I was coaching her a little bit around the story and she had a big breakthrough and she she realized, oh my God, I've been telling the story that society has told me to tell about Emily's death 
all this time. And she realized that she was never telling Emily's story or her own story. She was telling society's story of the evils of fentanyl. And she had lost Emily in that. And so she was able to completely construct a, a totally new story that was about hummingbirds and how hummingbirds had always come to her from when she was pregnant with Emily all the way through to today and how Emily is actually a hummingbird and how she talks about Emily in, in a way that shows us who Emily is and that Emily is still alive and that Emily is still part of Kath's life. So it became Kath and Emily's story. And, that, and she said, this set my soul free. This is my story. And it was a story I didn't have before. And so that is the power of taking the narratives that we're taught to tell, even about ourselves, and making them our own. Because society has told my story through my own mouth for all those years. And and until we know that we can challenge that and change that, we're going to continue to live out the tropes, live out the stereotypes, live out the stigma. Some of the most, the people with the most stigma about addiction and recovery are people in recovery without even realizing it. And then all the systems just reinforce and reinforce that. And we just become a walking definition of what other people tell us we are. And we believe it hook, line, and sinker. And it destroys who we actually are. We get lost in that. And when we think about people who use drugs, talk about them not having their own story. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest th- pieces of work that I, I hope to do in my life is to work with uh, people who use drugs to them have their own narratives, to be their own leaders, to have their own pure movement and their own, and they're already doing a lot of that. And I just want to be like another person helping in that because the way that we tell stories about the people who use the people, right. Who use drugs yeah. is yeah. killing them. I yeah, need that to was one of the, oh, sorry. To hear, I need to go now, but I stay just to hear the end of this beautiful story. So thank you very much. And I need to sign off. Part two of this conversation continues over on our Patreon. However, it will be available in one week's time for free. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmas, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interview personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.